The following is Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com. The move, smooth in the groove, on top, striving to prove. Nike's thriller bizarre. I don't care who you are. Sport Nike, that's right, and be hype like a star. Nike's the top, don't drop it, knock it, you can't stop it. Headed for the top of the market, just like a rocket. Shoes of other names, insane, won't sustain. With Nike, earth power will still remain. Welcome back to Nature of Business. I'm your host, Chrissy Coughlin. Thank you for joining us today. We are thrilled to have on the line uh, with us today, Hannah Jones. Hannah Jones is the Vice President of Sustainable Business and Innovation at Nike, and she is responsible for managing Nike's global corporate responsibility efforts. And this includes labor, compliance, sustainability, business integration, global community affairs, stakeholder engagement, and regional corporate responsibility programs all with a focus on systems change and innovation. She's a busy woman, and uh, so we're thrilled to have her take the time uh, out of her morning to join us. Welcome, Hannah. Thank you so much. So, I would love to start with... uh, who you are. You have such an interesting career trajectory. And uh, I want our listeners to know a little bit more about about you. I I was going to talk a little bit more in the intro here about your past work. um, But it's uh, I wanted to kind of get to the get to the questions here. But if you could give our listeners a little bit of uh, background on on how you've ended up where you are, that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Well, um, kind of accidentally, although the best (laughs) things often do happen that way, right? Right. Um, Certainly, you know, I'd never anticipated working in in business. You know, I I did a degree in philosophy, of all things, which um, I I continue to think has served me well, but I'm not sure quite how. (laughs) Um, And um, actually started my career in radio. I actually worked on pirate radio when I was a teenager in uh, Brussels in Europe and uh, uh, was recruited in to work um, for the BBC um, straight out of university where I worked on youth issues and social issues and ended up in their social action campaign unit um, for youth uh, on the youth radio station, and uh, which I loved. And uh, radio is my first love. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, I went into an NGO that was doing very similar work with um, kind of a focus on leveraging radio as a way of getting information through to young people to talk about the tough issues that they needed to understand, whether it be about anti-racism or AIDS and HIV prevention uh, or a number of other issues. And I did that for about four years uh, and, again, loved being in the NGO sector um, and did a lot of things like as well, like fundraising and volunteerism and stuff like that. And then really felt strongly that um, there was an opportunity to take some of what I was learning in uh, the NGO world and think about how that might uh, work within the corporate setting. Um, and, and I have to say, I think it was a, it was a completely naive thought at the time. <laughs> I don't, didn't have anything to base it on. Um, but again, serendipity um, and all those good things happened. And I found myself consulting to Microsoft on, and helping them set up their community investment program in Europe, which was an amazing experience um, and which led me to my first role at Nike, uh, where in 1998, I joined the company and took on uh, the European job that actually that was the first time we'd ever had a job like this, where my role was very much to 
start to engage in a dialogue with the labor unions, uh, with NGOs, with civil society as a whole, and with government around this very complicated issue that was really at the height then and emerging as a major issue around workers' rights in the supply chain. Mm-hmm. And that, that was the beginning of, of my career at Nike. I went on to run uh, what then became a corporate responsibility program across Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and found myself in this job in 2005. Wow. It's amazing how you just never really know where life is going to take you. It's it's excellent. Uh, so you you've talked about how how right now you've never really felt such a, a, a need for urgency and scale as you do today. And you have never been clearer about the role of sustainability as a driver for value creation and growth. Um, can you elaborate on this a little bit? Yeah, I think that, you know, when I joined Nike in 1998, the words corporate responsibility literally barely existed. I mean, it simply was a, it was a nascent movement and it was very much born out of a understanding of things that were um, wrong with supply chains and the risks that were inherently being um, created by the way in which business models had been constructed. So it very much came from a risk-based view. I think one of the things that's become very clear, um, certainly to our team here, we did a big piece of work about uh, five years ago doing scenario planning and looking out ahead at the future. Uh, And what we saw was that there were some major macro trends which are fundamentally going to impact the way in which people have to think about business and business models and even consumption. Um, And so some of those are just, you know, the the significant population growth, uh, less and less, uh, you know, scarcer natural resources, uh, increased volatility and disruption triggered by climate change-related weather issues, uh, which also trigger scarcer natural resources, increased access to information, making the consumer more of a citizen was something we predicted, which um, has proven to be playing out. Mm-hmm. And all these things together, including things like the cost of oil, uh, etc. We began to put the picture together that said businesses have been based and predicated on an era of abundance uh, with ava- readily available at relatively low cost um, supplies of, of natural resources. And, and that simply isn't going to go on being the truth. Mm. And we are going to enter an era of scarcity. And therefore, um, the innovators are the ones that will work out a way to succeed in that new dynamic. And so to us, because we began to look into the future, whilst we saw it could be challenging, we also see that can see that there are massive opportunities there. If you can innovate your way out of this situation, then the opportunities and the potential for new business models to emerge um, become really exciting. Mm-hmm. But I think one is the big macro trends are going to demand change. Are you going to be a laggard or are you going to be a leader? And the second one is that really out of that, we could see that um, we were beginning to see for ourselves that the old paradigm that sustainability and workers' rights were a cost to a business, were seen as a cost to a business, that paradigm simply doesn't ring true when you look at the evidence. You know, there is massive, significant value creation. Uh, There's value in risk mitigation. There is value to be found in environmental efficiencies that really impact your bottom line. If you look at innovation uh, through the lens of sustainability, you actually find yourself creating new and better products and potentially opening up new markets, new services, and new areas of growth. 
Mm-hmm. So we think it's a massive opportunity. We think it will be uh, sustainability will be at the nexus of the next wave of competitivity. So when you say innovate your way out of the situation and looking through uh, innovation through the sustainability lens, what specific examples at Nike can you give well, us? I, let, let me give you um, a story that for me is more of a kind of, it's a, it's a vignette, it's an epiphany moment that I personally had that really got me thinking about how I approach problem solving. Sure. One of the issues uh, amongst many uh, that we were trying to tackle in our supply chain as it related to workers' um, health and safety was um, that at a certain part of the process in footwear making, they would have to use um, relatively toxic solvents, um, and in order to use those solvents, would they would need to wear personal protective equipment, which is, you know, masks and gloves, etc. And we would spend a lot of time and energy and resources monitoring to make sure that the workers at all times were being provided the right PPE, protective equipment, and were wearing them. This is a huge um, kind of game of policing mm-hmm. in order to make sure that people are doing that. Well, one day we sat back with our chemists and we said, well, wh- what if we could just come up with a better solvent? What if we could come up with a solvent that didn't use toxic chemicals but actually used was water-based? And it took us five years and an amount of R&D time and energy to do it, um, but we did it. And so we switched out the uh, toxic solvents for um, water-based solvents. We didn't have to monitor anymore because the problem had gone away. And then we gifted it to the rest of the industry. We gifted the formula to the rest of the industry so that we could create change at scale. And that, to me, is just one of the, it was, a, it was a, this moment of clarity that, you know, we, we can start to think differently about how we imagine the future rather than trying to retrofit the past. Is there an option where we could solve a problem very differently? Mm-hmm. And that really began us on this journey of could we innovate new types of, new types of materials? Could we innovate new manufacturing models? Could we innovate new business models? Mm-hmm. Wow. Now let, let's. That's a that's a great example, and and I'm sure there there are several others. What about the? Uh, I mean, Nike is is such a a large company, and the supply chain is rather vast. Uh, you just came out with your the, your most recent sustainability report, and um, you came out with a couple of indexes: the manufacturing index and the sourcing and manufacturing sustainability index, and. To me, the underlying themes here are the transparency, the greater access to information. What, 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 what are you doing specifically? Like, what's worth highlighting as far as Nike's efforts with the, with the supply chain? Well, so we have um, we we have two uh, work streams going around our business model. When I when I talk about our business model, if I break it down, I think about how do we make better products in better factories with better materials that create better performance for the athlete and better performance for the shareholder. So Hmm. you break it down thinking about it as simply as that. Um, We then try to do things uh, in two ways. One is, how do we just make things better? And the other is, how do we actually completely disrupt and think about utterly new, radical, different ways of doing things? But if you're thinking about making better products and, and the factories better, then what we've done is, you know, um, basically gone in and understood what the issues are, understood what the potential solutions are, and then built tools that are bespoke that enable 
uh, our business partners and people in Nike that are working in those parts of the business to actually make better decisions real time and to send the right signals uh, with um, incentives and sanctions through um, the business relationship they have with suppliers. So let me bring that down to earth. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What it means is that when we think about how do we turn our factory partners, none of which we own, so just to give you a sense of scale, we have roughly a thousand factories in probably about 50 countries working for Nike, of which we are not always uh, by any means um, the biggest um, part of that factory's business. So mm -hmm. we might be in there with many other companies. Mm -hmm. So the key here is how do we leverage our business relationship with those factories to help them transition from a traditional model of apparel and footwear to one that is lean and green and where workers are uh, treated fairly and they are, uh, are empowered. And so what we have built are a whole series of tools. We have invested in actually training factory managers and then we've locked it into um, the manufacturing index, which we just talked about in our CR report, in which we've actually we, we started to measure their performance on sustainability and treat it as an equal partner to how we measure them from other business indicators such as margins, on-time delivery, or quality. Mm -hmm. So going forward, we've basically said to our factories, there are new rules to the game here. We are going to measure you based on these four big things, of which sustainability is one of them, and we will give you growth if you begin to show us that you're going to move up the ladder and improve performance. And we will look at sanctions if we see that um, you're falling beneath those standards. So you're really following the, the power of that business relationship. Mm -hmm. How does that work when, when I'm interested in, in how that works with factories where you're just a small piece. So Nike isn't the, 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 there are many businesses that are in these thousand factories. How, how does the, what Nike says affect the change, actually well, make it happen? I, it's a great question because that is absolutely key to our entire strategy around transparency and collaboration. So everything we do, when you think about what we need to do as a business to change, it's utterly clear that we can't do it alone. And that if we're going to be successful in shifting our business model, we need to actually see entire industries shift as well. And not just the apparel and footwear industry, but many adjacent industries as well. For example, we need chemical industries to be supplying green chemistry to us. Mm. So a lot of this is about how fast can we share our learnings and our tools with the rest of the industry and how well can we collaborate with the rest of the industry so that we're collectively sending the same signals to our suppliers that tells them the market is going this way, I need to go this way. And a great example, I mean, I think is the, uh, the work that we've done on supply chains. Um, we work very heavily with the rest of the industry through bodies like the Fair Labor Association and others, the Sustainable Power Coalition, for example. And it's really about how can we find convergence? So in the absence of legislated standards that are enforced, how do we create voluntary convergence around standards and tools that we actually co-create? So, for example, we spent six to seven years creating a design tool that helps designers incorporate environmental choices at the moment of design. We call it the Considered Design Index. And we have gifted that um, tool, which, uh, you know, we've got substantial intellectual capital in, and resources into, we've gifted that to the rest of the industry. Because again, if we can all use those same tools, 
we can go faster, cheaper, mm-hmm. and we can create greater scale of change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So wh- tell us a little bit more about, that was my next question, talking about the, the considered design index and the tool. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, again, it was it was born uh, in about, you know, we, we'd, we'd done a substantial amount of work on environmental uh, compliance and thinking about restricted substances and thinking about the impact that we were having on the environment. But a lot of the work was um, downstream. Uh, so what was happening was we had an environmental team where they were measuring products once they came out of the factories and, and scoring them. But that's too late. You're, mm-hmm. you're By that stage, product's coming out of the factory and it's going to the market. So we literally, in 2006, picked up that team, if you can imagine it visually, <laughs> and placed them uh, in the design team uh, right at the top. Because if you can get a designer to understand how to think about sustainability as a design uh, principle, then you can have a, a very significant effect downstream on, on, on product coming out at huge scale. So uh, most of the designers, when we did that, said, well, that's great, but sustainability is this huge, big, kind of complex thing that we don't understand or or, or we can't quite make head or toe of. What what do we do with this thing? I know you want us to be more sustainable, but we don't know how to do it. Mm. And and from that was birthed the work that came to create a very much a bespoke tool that is completely targeted at that design community. We have 600 designers at Nike at that design community so that they and their developers who are working with the factories to translate the designs uh, with the factories have are thinking about toxic chemicals and they're thinking about waste and pattern efficiency and they're thinking about environmentally preferred materials and they're thinking about innovation. And part of this as well is um, we score products. And so it became competitive. And because we're Nike, people are very competitive. (laughs) And so that's really fun because um, uh, people would compete over their scores. And then if someone came up with a great new innovation, that gave us a chance to take that innovation and flow it back into the design community so that we would cascade that out and make it the new norm. Hmm. Um, And and so that's really become um, an incredibly powerful tool. And it was a great insight to us into how you empower a community of people, whether it be employees or designers at large, to be change agents. Right. And at the end of the day, I think that's got to be our role as sustainability practitioners. How do we become catalysts and enablers so that everybody in their role can be an agent of change? Then you start to see system change and scale change. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. everybody has a, has a part and they feel empowered by it. Absolutely. I mean, everybody wants to be a hero, right, in their own life story. So I I happen to think um, designers are heroes. But, you know, one day I walked onto campus and our gardeners became my hero because quietly they'd gone off and transformed all their vans for the campus into biodiesel and, you know, branded it Innovate for a Better World, which is our call to action to the employee base of Nike Inc. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. So... Let, let's let's talk about a little bit a little bit about the the labor issues way back when probably you came on board um, Nike Nike went from a real defensive um, position to uh, with regard to workers rights to now really being an industry leader in terms of innovation and and supply chain uh, just systems thinking and trying to, to really move the needle how, how, how has that evolution been for you tell us a little bit about your experience from when you first started Nike till now? 
Well, you know, what I, what I always say, and, and, and I mean this profoundly, is um, that with the benefit of hindsight, I, I think that um, being a company that in those early days was one of the first companies to be really focused on and attacked as uh, a company that represented all that was wrong with globalization actually was a good thing for us. Mm -hmm. um, it was enormously painful. Um, and I think even before I came on, you know, I came on in 1998, which was really a tipping point. They had just recruited their first VP of corporate responsibility ever. Um, and, but before that, the company had gone through a very significant period of pain internally, particularly in the employee base, where people were um, really taken aback and stunned and, and very, um, very upset about what the accusations were. And, and as a company, the company had made some big missteps by being overly defensive, somewhat aggressive, and not engaging in dialogue. You have mm -hmm. to remember that back in 1992, when this began, the words of corporate responsibility were completely unheard of. Right. Companies tended to be just thinking about their business model. And Nike was a teenage company. So it was a very <sighs> young company growing up with all that is great and sometimes not so great about being a teenager. Um, <laughs> I really think that analogy sometimes works That's with companies as well. Um, but 1998 was a bit of a tipping point in that it really was a signal that the company had come to terms that there was a new paradigm opening up for business, which is that business would be held accountable for things that it had never imagined it had accountability for. And mm -hmm. Phil Knight uh, did a, a relatively famous speech at the uh, press club in Washington in 98, where he basically took on ownership of this issue, whereas before he hadn't. And um, we began um, to actually sit down with some of our harshest critics and begin a dialogue. And, and that brought us into this era of partnership and, and still healthy dialogue and constructive dialogue with many um, that began to have us thinking about how do we actually start to think about getting to the bottom of what the issues are and getting to the solutions. Pretty soon, uh, we kind of moved into the next stage um, of our journey, which was realizing that some of those issues really related to the way in which we were running our business and that the industry was being run as an industry. And that while it was important to be working with NGOs on the ground, for example, in Vietnam or in Indonesia, where the supply chain was, it would be as significant, if not more, that we needed to go back and think about how do we integrate principles of sustainability and workers' rights into our processes and the way in which we think about our business. And I call it really this moment of tipping into business integration. Mm -hmm. and, and we've done a significant amount of work around that. And I think what that began to open up was that the limits to retrofitting the past are that it gets tougher and tougher to make things better and better when a system's already established. So how do you architect new systems? How do you think about designing the future? Mm -hmm. Which got us into this latest chapter where we really began to think about, you know, 30 years ago, Phil Knight dreamt up this company. Can we dream up what the next iteration of this company will be or what business should be with the environment and workers' rights built into the fabric of how we think about that design versus being added on as an afterthought. All right, exactly. How how is this for you and your team team at Nike? It seems like you're there's so much going on with innovation and um, obviously all the stuff we've talked about supply chain sustainability. What are you? Is there pushback internally at all, or is this? Are you really 
able to feel like at the end of the day, you're really making some serious change? Well, you know, I, I have never felt more um, excited about the opportunity that we have today at Nike. Mm -hmm. um, we have really gone from being a policing function where we were very much kind of out to one side, looking in at the business, wagging our fingers, <laughs> to being partners, uh, partners with the business in driving forward an innovation agenda. We just went through um, our target setting exercise, and it was incredible, incredible to me personally to watch the level of accountability being taken by other executives uh, around the table for really driving aggressive targets and implementing them as part of their business. I mean, we really have got to the place at Nike where sustainability is core to our growth agenda and it sits in everybody's uh, work as this is how we do our jobs, mm -hmm. which then frees up our team to be really helping drive in partnership with the other innovation functions at Nike to drive the innovation agenda. Mm -hmm. um, and that's incredibly exciting. Uh, we have aligned our innovation agenda as a company with our sustainability agenda. It's one agenda. Hmm. Wow. So how is this translating to customers? Are, are customers communicating their needs and wants to Nike, or is this something happening internally and you're just doing it? Not, no pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, yeah. I think, uh, I think there, there were two things uh, around uh, uh, the consumer and, and why we're doing it. I think, first of all, we're doing it because we believe it's absolutely critical to how we grow our company. Sure. We think it's the right thing to do, but we actually think it's a growth agenda. We think it's a it brings huge value creation. It, we think it's a uh, enormously important to our employee base, and we actually think it's a uh, an important um, uh, in terms of recruitment of talent uh, uh, as well. So that's one thing. When it comes to the consumer, what we see is that uh, the consumer, the young consumer, our consumer, the 17-year-old consumer, we, we went out and we did. Uh, deep focus groups and insights with um, young people in um, uh, Brazil, in New York, and in London. And what we heard was this. They have grown up on Orange Alert. They have grown up with 9-11. Uh, you know, They've grown up with hurricanes and tsunamis. They've grown up with the threat of unemployment, 50% you know, in Spain of youth unemployment. Yeah. Um, they have grown up seeing wind farms starting to sprout around them and they think it's entirely normal uh, and they are more empowered and more uh, knowledgeable than any other generation of young people before and they don't talk about sustainability with the language that we the geeks use <laughs> they simply expect it of us they expect business it's a license to operate and it will soon become a requisite and and what we have begun to see is that there is um you know, that there was a huge interest in appetite in having a deep dialogue on this. So we have a Nike Better World, NikeBetterWorld.com um, uh, platform that we've started working on. Um, and what we're seeing is uh, real interest from young consumers to be engaged. They don't want greenwashing. They're mm -hmm. very cynical. So I think yeah. it's incredibly important that this be an authentic conversation. And the big thing for us is they're not going to compromise on price or quality or performance. They expect to, to, that premium should be redefined to be sustainability, 
performance and aesthetic and price. And that's the brand promise that we believe we need to give them. Mm-hmm. Wow, this is great. I have one last question. We have about a minute. Um, so Fast Company, uh, I had to mention this, Fast Company relatively recently named you as number eight as most creative uh, people in business. And obviously, this is a terrific and, and huge honor. Um, tell us what the secret sauce is here for, for this award. What are you doing? I have no idea how I got that award. <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 here's what I believe. I believe that um, the book has not been written and that nobody has all the answers. And so I am a huge believer in collective intelligence um, and diversity of thought and culture and gender and skills. And so, you know, to me, creativity is born out of bringing people with very different approaches to problem solving, very different insights together and saying, you can do this, we can solve this together. Um, On Saturday, for example, we had a hackathon where we brought design students from the London College of uh, Fashion together with hackers and they co-worked on how they could solve a problem. Hmm. And it was an amazing piece of work that came out of it. So, So to me, it's all about how do you unleash the creativity in teams and in people by um, having them focus on things that make them passionate about, you know, if I can solve this, if I can be a hero in this, I could actually change the world. And I think that's really diversity is a huge trigger for innovation. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Wow, Hannah, thank you so much for, for your time here. This has been been fabulous. No problem. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, we will talk soon and uh, I will um, put this podcast up on the site and send you a copy and all that good stuff. So I, I, I really appreciate your time. No problem. Thank okay. you so much. Okay. Bye. Bye. The proceeding has been Nature of Business with Chrissy Coughlin in association with GreenBiz.com. 